0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Book Nook Room of AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Friday, November 11th. Um, 11 on 11, 11 and all that stuff. Uh, 2011. And Accessible World is very pleased to welcome members of the DB Review List. Very popular list. And the book they chose this time for the fall classic was David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. To learn more about Charles Dickens, we've asked Bonnie Bloss to prepare something for us. So, without further ado, Bonnie, the microphone is yours.
1: Thank you, Bob. And thank you, Nolan and Don, for allowing me to begin by doing this. Charles John Huffam Dickens was considered by many to be the greatest novelist of the Victorian period. He was born in Landport, in Portsea, I believe, P-O-R-T-S-E-A, on February 8, 1812, to John and Elizabeth Dickens. He was the second of eight children. His father was a clerk in the Navy pay office. They lived for a long time in Chatham and Kent, which was considered to be the real home of the Dickens family. As a boy, he read voraciously, enjoying particularly novels by Tobias Smollett and Henry Fielding. Charles Dickens said he had a near-photographic memory of people and experiences from his childhood, which served him well in his novels and other works. Although he attended private school for a short time, this came to an end due to the financial problems his family had. They eventually moved to London. His father went to debtor's prison, where the family joined him, except for Charles, who was 12 at the time, and went to live with a family friend. After leaving school, he worked 10-hour days at Warren's Blacking Warehouse, earning six shillings a week. And this is one of the similarities between, of course, David Copperfield, which is semi-autobiographical, and uh, the life of Charles Dickens as well. The strenuous and cruel working conditions had a profound effect on him, and, as I said, appeared in much of his fiction many times over. He became interested in socioeconomic conditions and said he wondered how he could have been cast away at such a young age and to such conditions. Charles Dickens believed a father should rule the home and that a mother should find her proper place inside it. He was angry at his mother in a way because she didn't really take him out of this work he was doing at the blacking factory as he thought she should. So he had a lot of anger at his own circumstances and the conditions and treatment of the working-class people as well. And these became the major themes in much of his work, especially in David Copperfield as well as other works. He eventually learned shorthand and worked as a law clerk before becoming a freelance reporter. And for several years, Charles Dickens wrote political commentaries as well. In 1830, he became involved with a woman named Maria Biednell, his first love, but her family disapproved, so she was sent away to Paris, and Dora is based on this particular person. His first story, A Dinner at Poplar Walk, was published in 1833. On April 2nd, 1836, he married Catherine Thomas Hogarth. They had ten children. Her sister, Mary, came to live with them at the age of 17 and became very attached to Charles, but she died in his arms after a short illness. She is used as a character in many of his novels. He visited America for the first time in 1842, a trip considered successful despite the fact that he supported the abolition of slavery. He founded a home called Urania College, whose purpose was to rehabilitate fallen women, eventually giving them training to re-enter society. They actually received a printed invitation from Charles to move there. It wasn't signed by him, but he did send it. In 1860, he burned nearly all of his correspondence, except for business letters that he deemed to be very important. Dickens was involved in a train crash called the Stablehurst Rail Crash on June 9, 1865. The first seven carriages of a train plunged off a cast-iron bridge. His was the only one that didn't. He did many public readings in Europe and also on a second trip to America, which he undertook in 1867. Many of his novels were serialized, and one of the interesting things about them is that because he did not write the chapters very far ahead of publication, he witnessed both the public reaction Uh, that people had and could then, because he had to write the next chapter, alter the story based on the reaction of the public. On April 22, 1869, he suffered a mild stroke. His last public appearance was on May 2, 1870 at a royal banquet. On June 8, 1870, he suffered another stroke at his home, and the next day, five years to the day after the Staplehurst railway crash, he died. Although he wanted to be buried in Rochester Cathedral and in a very inexpensive way, he was buried in the poet's corner of Westminster Abbey. His last words were said to be these, Be natural, my children, for the writer that is natural has fulfilled all the rules of art. He wanted no memorial to honor him. 180 films and TV adaptations have been made of his work. A silent film version of the Pickwick Papers appeared in 1913. Although his most famous work is A Christmas Carol, his novel A Tale of Two Cities sold 200 million copies. Charles Dickens never forgot the poor as many did. He spoke for those who didn't have the power to speak for themselves. And as I was preparing this today, I was struck by how although they were written in a different time, John Steinbeck and Charles Dickens both championed the rights and needs and dreams of the poor to have a better life. I will end with his works but before i do that i do want to say that someone actually did research and determined that in all of the work charles dickens was involved with and all of the, the books he'd written there were a total of 989 characters some people really don't have a lot to do that's an aside from me his works include the pickwick papers the adventures of oliver twist the life and adventures of nicholas nickleby barnaby rude Barnaby Rudge, sorry, Master Humphrey's Clock, The Old Curiosity Shop, A Christmas Carol, The Chimes, The Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit, The Cricket on the Hearth, A Fairy Tale of Home, subtitle, The Battle of Life, The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, Dombey and Son, David Copperfield, Bleak House, Hard Times for These Times, Little Dorrit, A Tale of Two Cities. Great Expectations, Our Mutual Friend, No Thoroughfare, written with Wilkie Collins, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, The Lazy Tour of Two Idle Apprentices with Wilkie Collins, and then some collections, Sketches by Boz, Boots at the Holly Tree Inn, and other stories, Reprinted Pieces, The Haunted House with Wilkie Collins, and some anthologies, A House to Let, American Notes, Pictures from Italy, The Life of Our Lord as Written for His Children, A Child's History of England, and Uncommercial Traveler. That is my beginning information about Charles Dickens. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Bonnie. And now I would like to introduce our co-hosts, our leaders of the DV List, Nolan Crabb and Don Horn. And I'll let you guys take over for now. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Bob. And thanks, Bonnie, for an outstanding job as the signal from this microphone okay
0: yes we can hear you
2: okay well in that case we'll carry on here a bit uh good evening everyone and welcome to the third annual fall classic for db review the the book wrap-up that's just an incredible feat in and of itself if you'll forgive me for indulging a little personally i never really thought when db review began just a few months shy of four years ago now um that it would you know, host three <laughs> fall classic uh, book wrap-up events right here. All of them have been here at the Accessible World site, and we are grateful beyond measure for the privilege of being able to, to be part of this site and to have our our book wrap-up kind of thing hosted here. I I'm so grateful, Bob, for your your kindness and giving us some space here, and we do very much appreciate it. Um, not only is this the third. Um, as all of you know but the third annual book classic but it's also uh, a time in which we celebrate the anniversary of the birth of Alexander Scorby his birthday is actually November 13th um, but and so we try to get it as, as close to that day and time as we can since we are DB Review and we're about audiobooks and all that good stuff and uh, so again thank you all for being part of this tonight um I do have some some comments as we get into this a little bit. Uh, I want my stuff to sort of come later. I'd prefer the group have a a shot here. I got some email comments from Alan Lemley that I would like to read as uh, part of the meeting tonight at some point. Uh, Alan can't be here tonight, but he has been a faithful participant in in years past. and uh, So we'll go ahead and include him later. I just want to... uh, express my appreciation for those of you who voted for this book. It's not one I would have picked. I have to be truthful. Um, and I came at it with a great deal of trepidation in the beginning. Uh, as it turned out, my wife and I read it together uh, in the evenings, and it was it turned out to be a valuable and wonderful experience, really. Uh, I was surprised, I have to admit. I enjoyed the book. I wasn't certain that I would, uh, but it turned out to be an excellent Experience for me, and I hope for you as well. We'll go ahead and, and talk uh, specifics here in just a minute. I want to give Don a couple of minutes to say a few things if he'd like to do that, and then we'll go ahead and get into the specifics and just sort of do a, a bit of a discussion, around table that includes everyone here, if, if, or at least as many as want to participate. So, Don, if you want to chime in, that's fine. That'd be great. We'd love to hear from. Great, we'd love to hear from. You. I'll
3: go ahead, Don. Okay, Uh, as I was saying before we
4: formally started, I'm really pleased to see people here and not only to see people here but to see the valuable contributions that are coming into DB Review these days, uh, it's really become a an incredible list, and that's because of everyone who contributes to it. I was thrilled to read this again, and like Nolan, this probably was not the book that I would have chosen. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was really funny, because for a while, we were really neck and neck. It was, I got to tell you, when we were tallying votes, it was really close for quite a while. Um... I found reading this an incredibly valuable experience. Um, there were a few things I, uh, that troubled me about the book, but for the most part I was very, very clear on why it was a classic and I thought it was very interesting. I thought the narration was outstanding and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Certainly at a time when we're remembering Alexander Scorby also, this gives us an opportunity to really value the art of narration. But let me go ahead and hear what other people have to say because I'm sure
2: people have very interesting comments to make. What I'd like to do, if it's okay with everyone on the, in the group, is just sort of go around and have as many as wish to participate, do so, and just talk at at this point in general terms about their perspectives of the book, and uh, we'll go ahead and just do that, and, and we'll, we'll get into specifics here in just a minute or two, so let's go ahead, um, I'll, I'll do this last this time, but I'd like to hear from others, what generally did you feel about the book? What were your perspectives, your impressions, et cetera?
0: Well, I'm Bob Acosta, and I will be brief, but uh, this is my second time reading it. I think I read it in college, and now again, and like you, I I looked at 38 hours. I said, we'll never finish it, and I talked to some people. Oh, I read part of it, but I can't go on, and I kept saying, go on, because it was like quicksand. And Some chapters, I said, why is this chapter here? But then I'd find out a couple of chapters later. Um, I love Dickens because he captures life. What he talks about, it—we've all met a Uriah Heap, sad to say, you know. We've all met an Agnes, you know, and a Dora. All these characters. If you think about it, we say, I knew someone like this, and that's what uh, uh, got me. And of course, uh, the, the David's, uh, Dave Marster Davies uh, Cruise Through Life were the ups and downs of life that we face not in the same way obviously but he survived and i thought it was a terrific book and i'm glad the fall classic group the DB list voted for it thank you
5: well i'm i didn't vote for anything really but i did read the book and um i think i started reading it when i was in high school and i think i read part of it but i think Um, I think when I was in my 20s and 30s, I went through what I call the Dickens phase. And one of the books, of course, I wanted to get through was David Copperfield. And John Horton was the narrator. I think it was a rather... It was a bit of a slog for me that I recall. Um, um, Of course... It's, it's in movies. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard the movie, but I think it took me about halfway through the book for me to really get into it and be propelled by the story. Um, and I know that the characters are definitely memorable. Um, so I have to say Horton did a great job, and there were parts of it I really liked, um, other parts I wasn't so crazy about hi
3: um Ann Parsons here and I did read David Copperfield many many long years ago um in fact I read it a long enough ago that the narrator was Alan Haynes and I have to say that John Horton did a creditable job and you know that's fine but the problem i faced was that i kept hearing haynes in the background and um you know i don't know if anybody's ever experienced that kind of thing with a talking book but uh that's what happened to me and i have to say i have always enjoyed dickens i find that uh david copperfield i see differently now than i did when i first read it um mainly because i started looking at david in light of some of the the psychological things that happened to him in his life and that makes dickens even more um apropos these days um and i i have to say that it's not my favorite of the Dickens books that I have read. I think if, if I were pushed to it, I might say that I liked Great Expectations better. But um, there are some really fantastic characters in this book. And that's all I'll say for right now.
6: Hi, I'm Ruth Costa, And uh, this is my third rereading of uh, David Copperfield. And uh, I, too, go back to the days of Alan Haynes and how he read this book and put such life into the characters, Mr. Peg- Peggerty and Peggerty herself and uh, Betsy Trockwood. But we, uh, it, it is, to me, you know, a very personal book and, uh, that uh, Dickens wrote and it had many, you know, of, Many things, you know, which showed his life. Um, the he he is such a student of life to to me. And now uh, some of the characters, uh, you know, Betsy Trotwood. I I think that I think of her as kind of the all of, uh, the uh, today's woman. You know, I mean, someone who's going to go on without men or whatever. And uh, she said it like she saw it. And uh, but there was one thing that was that scared her, and that was her. Her husband. Uh, the McCobbers, who, you know, were both David and uh, Tommy Traddles, wound up uh, residing. Uh, some of the worst characters, some of the characters I did not like were the Murdstons, both Miss and Mr. Murdston. And uh, I was interested, too, in uh, how he always. And, and, I've seen this in life sometimes, where people keep coming back into your life as, um, and you know, and, and coming into the life and having something to think. And I think too, reading something at a later time in high school, we don't always have the um, personal, the experience to really understand a lot of the things. And uh, reading it a little later on gives gave me, at least, a, uh, of, you know, I saw different things in it. And there were times when, you know, even though I've read this before, uh, when I got other thing when I got more out of this than I did, or I either had forgotten some of the characters or had forgotten some of life and uh, found this, you know, really to be a great book.
1: I think one of the things that really touches me about this book is, The idea of how innocence is taken away by experience, and the people you meet, how they affect that. In a strange way, David Copperfield was always, as I think we all do in life, yearning and hoping and dreaming and wanting And in some ways, even though he lost a lot of the innocence, there was always a small part of that innocence that stays, and that did stay for him. I think that happens to us, too. Hopefully, within all of us, in some way, somewhere, there is some innocence that remains, some awe and wonder, no matter how hard life might be, that we still maintain and can hold on to. And I was touched by that. His... uh, Vulnerabil- his vulnerability, his wanting to believe in people, um, earnestly asking questions, wanting to know, to learn um, and yet at the same time finding out that a lot of the things he believed were changed, a lot of it he couldn 't really hold on to in the same way he had as a child, but some of it, I think he always lived uh, hopefully. Um, was always trying to move onward. And it's really, I think this book is really a symbol for that way of living for all of us because really as long as we're here, unless we sit in a corner somewhere, that's really what we all have to do. I think Charles Dickens was absolutely right on about that. And it had to be painful to write about your own life, but he did it.
2: Well, I, am um, on a general level, and then we're, again, we're going to talk some specifics here in a bit. But on a general level, I thought that um, this book kind of reached out to me in, uh, on a variety of levels. There were people whom I really came to appreciate. And part of it was indeed the narration, which we'll talk about in a, bit, a bit later. Um, on balance, I uh, found the book believable. I think that the only character that I really struggled hard with was that of Uriah Heep and part of it may have been the narr- the narration he was so villainous that he almost seemed a caricature of a real human being I I guess real human beings can be that villainous um and that obsequious and, and all that fake humility that he was that he was engaging in there um but I, I guess that was my only real struggle in terms of character in the book was, was him and the uh, the immense difficulty that I had in trying to uh, even relate to people whom I knew that were like him. I mean, I obviously met some people in my day who were, um, uh, you know, less than sunny side up, if you will, and, uh, and yet I don't know that I've known any who uh, had quite those same combinations of character who were, were that what's the word, I'm hypocritically humble, and all those kinds of things, I, they're out there obviously, but I don't know that I've actually had to deal with any such, thank goodness, so I struggled with that a little bit, but on balance, the characters to me came across as being rather, rather believable and and uh, helpful in some respects, and understandable <laughs> in some respects, so uh, I loved the the, you know, the fact that that I could relate to them, even though these characters were are nearly two centuries old now in terms of their their life and time. Um, which leads me into my next little segue, I guess, and I guess I want to know a little bit about what you thought of the the characters. Did you have a favorite character? Did you have a, a character that was not such a favorite? And, and why do you suppose that character didn't matter very much to you? Those kinds of things. I would tell you my... My favorite character, oddly enough, was not David, although he certainly deserved to be up, up there, and he was. I have to tell you, I think my favorite character was old Mr. Peggotty, the, uh, the old father, the old uh, uncle, or whatever you want to call him, the old gentleman that looked after Emily and was on such an incredible quest to save her and find her and bring her back. There isn't a father in this room who, who is a father. There isn't a person in this room who, who is a father who doesn't have those kinds of uh, feelings toward their offspring, who, who wouldn't reach out through every kind of fog and darkness and horror to bring that, that child back, if need be, from whatever place he or she had gone to, and I was so struck by his quest, and it moved me deeply, um, and it caused me to really think about fatherhood, and how far would you go to, to reach out to one of your children and try to bring them back from some dark and tragic place? And uh, I think the answer is, if you really have a conscientious desire to be good at it, the answer is you would you would go to whatever lengths you had to. I've I've monopolized a lot, and I apologize, but I do want to know what you think in terms of characters and development of characters. Let's go that route now.
0: Mm, Let's go for the moment. All right. Oh, oh! I thought Don was. I can. Okay, I'll go on. Well, uh, Peggotty's very high up there, and Miss Peggotty, I, and I love Barkus. Barkus is willing. I love that. I should have proposed that way. It saved a lot of flowers and courting and all that. But uh, mine is Betsy Trotwood, uh, because even when he was thinking about Agnes a little bit, and there, there I got frustrated because so many words about love for Agnes, and he didn't say it, and he did, and I said, David, for God's sakes, propose to her, but but Betsy remember said, blind, 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 and i I cracked up because he was blind to his love for Agnes and then and then later, a beggar looks at him now there he might have said a blind beggar, but he said, blind, blind, blind. They worked it in the next chapter about David. uh David, sorry. And um but mine was Betsy Trotwood. I think she was a, a woman in another century. She was independent. She um Mr Dick, what should we do with the child? And she knew what he was gonna say and he said, He's fit him out for a suit and she says, Let me shake your hand, you're a man of good sense And Betsy's my kind of woman. The husband, she truly loved him. And that's why she gave him money. That's why she sneaked around and said, David, not a word about what I'm doing. I'm doing it. But she was my uh, favorite character. I don't know if you wanted worse ones, but uh, Uriah Heep is at the bottom uh, for me. And um, um, let's see, uh, the other uh, Mertstons, Jane, terrible lady, and Mr. Mertston, they're pretty bad.
5: Uh, well, I think I, I agree. I think Trot M- Miss Betsy was certainly a bit of a tartar, um, and um, I think she's a might peculiar and a bit of eccentric. And so, I guess that's why she stand out for me. As for the the uh, traddle, well, oh, as for other characters that stood out for me, yeah, the Murdstone stood as what not to do with a kid, and. Uh, um, Also, Steerforth, now, you know, I think what got me about Steerforth is that sometimes you can befriend somebody and you don't know what they're really like. And, of course, uh, Steerforth sort of uh, worms his way into the family of the Peggates and takes Emily and uh, ruins her life, you know, because she doesn't know anything about smooth talking guys and steerforth definitely was um well dora stood out to me as being a real childlike immature kind of a gal and she would have driven me crazy with the baby talk and the dogs and all that and macabre what a feckless guy he was i mean um I feel sorry for Mrs. Micawber. I mean, those were the days where, if you were a respectable woman, you didn't get out and work. And um, I don't know. I don't. I think she probably would have been better as the head of the family than Mr. Micawber. Uh, that's my opinion, anyway.
6: I think I have to say something here about Steerforth and Mother Steerforth, and uh, also that horrible woman, Miss Dartle that lived with them, but uh, they said one time that uh, the poor didn't really count because they didn't have feelings, as did uh, the well-educated people like Steerforth and uh, people, So, which is how he kind of uh, justified uh, his behavior with uh, little Emily, as she was originally known, who was the perfect person that you know he that uh mr peggarty had taken in mr peggarty took in a lot of people including you know he never forgot master Davy. and uh, i too think that uh, betsy trotwood was uh, someone who spoke the truth spoke it as she saw it uh said exactly what she wanted to do but uh i think if we're talking about um uh dora a little bit people may say, well, you know, people like her don't really exist anymore, but I kind of want to differ with you on that, because aren't there some women who give all of their thoughts to looking pretty, and buying pretty clothes, and all of the affections, or all of the uh, affectations, rather than worrying about, uh, you know, improving their mind, And, and of course we can't forget jip who walked on the table and um, was you know her dog and everything like that but i tend to agree that she would have driven me crazy but uh, i think that there are women who you know just all they think about is being pretty and being uh you know like a china doll and that's kind of how dora many times was i have so many
3: feelings about so many of these characters and part of Dickens' charm is that he not only draws his main characters well, but he also draws the bit parts extremely well. I of course hated the the characters that you're supposed to hate, the uh, the Uriah Heap and the and the so forth and, and uh Steerforth, yeah. Um very smooth, very um, well, Mephistophelian, if you will. I guess I'm pronouncing that the wrong way, but anyway. Um, but I liked Peggotty. I always liked Peggotty, um, the the maid, the housekeeper, Peggotty, because um, I just thought that she was kind of the the anchor that kind of kept things uh, sane for, for both David and his mother and as far as Dora is concerned and I said earlier about the, the psychological aspects of this book I found that Dora was a real parallel to David's mother and it has often been said that men marry women who are closer close in personality to their mothers and this is often the case and so um dickens wrote this in his book and you know understood this a hundred years before it became a fashionable psychological maxim if you will um and as far as his finally coming around to, to Agnes, I sense that was when he truly grew up and discovered what he really wanted in life and and so forth. Um, I just find his bit characters fascinating. I mean, the, the, the little dwarf hairdresser, whatever... Um, the the guy in the i'll never forget the guy in the in the uh where david sold his jacket when he was going from uh, london to to well uh, vis- uh, visit his aunt uh, the first the first time i you know just these bit parts that that stand out that are so so amazingly well drawn and um Mr. Barkus. I liked Mr. Barkus. he was good. So, um, that's my opinion on the on the characters.
2: Okay, well, that that's a pretty good go on those, and and um, I, I've often, you know, since I read the book, I've thought about some of those characters and wondered um, whether they had any parallels, and and they kind of do, I think. I I almost see uh, Peggy as a kind of a Christ-like. Character in some respects, he took on all comers. People moved in, you know. They they found shelter in his place. They uh, his place was humble, but it was adequate. Um, he went on this phenomenal quest for the girl to bring her back, and there's almost a messiah kind of a, if you will. And I don't mean to offend any of you here who who uh, you know aren't persuaded in that regard. But um, I wondered. I've often, as I read the book, I wondered if Dickens. Uh, had any kind of a uh, you know, thought about the old father, the old gentleman being sort of a Christ-like character in in as he wrote it. Probably not. I'm probably reading way too much into this. It's a bit of a stretch. Um, what I'd like to do is share with you now Alan Lemley's comments, and I'm not going to read it word for word because uh, I don't have a braille display on this machine, and uh, to sit here and try to parrot the voice synthesizer is a, l- a little bit more difficult than I want to get into this late at night So, but I do want to at least summarize those with you and if you'll give me just a quick second to do that
5: I would say for me um, if you were to put Heap and Peggotty together Peggotty is what true humility is because he doesn't assume a heck of a lot he doesn't really toot his horn and Anybody can tell you that if someone talks about how humble they are, they most probably aren't.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that, that false humility was just scary to watch. And, I mean, there are people out there like that, I suppose. So, um, And, and the Steerforth guy, was we've, we've all known characters like that who were so captivating and so charming. And they've all, you know, those kind of people pull us into their satellite. We become their satellites if we aren't very careful. Um, and I don't care who it is, whether it's a, you know, charismatic religious character or a, a really buff and polished salesperson or whatever. Uh, life is full of steerforths, unfortunately. And so, yeah, some of those characters I weren't, I wasn't quite as able to relate to. But we all, we've all can can relate to those some of those. Alan talks about the vocabulary that Dickens uses. And he said that's the thing that he liked. One of the things he liked most about the book was Dickens' use of vocabulary. And that's certainly true. Um, He um, certainly liked the characters and the humor that Dickens wove into the narrative. Um, uh, Of course, he talks here about Horton's performance, and we're going to actually get into that as a separate segment. I don't know what can be said that won't become repetitive after a while, but I think we can do that. We're a pretty creative group. So he did mention the narrator's performance, how much it added to this particular edition of the book. Um, and uh, he said he enjoyed listening to Horton almost as much as he enjoyed the writing itself. And um, his uh, Mrs. Macomber, or Macabre was especially well done, according to Alan. So um, he said his favorite character, since we've had that discussion, um, Wilkins, he liked Wilkins uh, number one as, as the best. Um, he he said I chuckled at most of the passages spoken by Mr. Macabre, um because of the language, his use of the language, and his the never-ending um, you know financial difficulties the guy had. And we you know we all know people like that who just sort of grease by and they skate by on their credit cards and they're months behind and they they're just, they just and yet somehow they survive. They just sort of bounce on and carry on. Um, of course his least favorite was Heap. We've all talked about that. Um, Betsy was his second most favorite and, uh, he says he's blunt himself, but he fails in, in comparison to Betsy. (laughs) Um, you know, so that's, that was his second favorite. Donald, of course, uh, Mr. Peggy was, was his third favorite. Um, His total lack of concern for material things were truly inspiring, Alan writes. That's certainly true. I would agree with that. Um, And, of course, he liked the way Horton pronounced or used uh, the voice for that particular character. Um, And I guess he goes in to talk about the ones he didn't like here. Of course, uh, Murdston, Edward and Jane, were at the top of that list for a variety of reasons. Um, Of course, Heap was number two in his list and he was interested that a 60s British rock band would take the name Uriah Heep. I've thought about that too as I read the book I had the strains of easy living going through my head that comes from spending too many Saturday afternoons on the worldwide legend I guess he didn't like uh, Dora either and he talked about the reasons he didn't like her um, he said she was empty headed and helpless and um, he wondered if the phrase "Dumb Dora" was is not somehow based on this this character. So, um, <laughs> he too, Bob liked the, the, one of his favorite quotes was the old uh, "Varkus is willing" the the, <laughs> the proposal. And uh, uh, so, and he's got some others in here that I won't take time to read. But those were Alan's perspectives on on the book. Um, what I want to do now is just talk with you about the narration, what you thought, uh, what could have been better, what, uh, what you thought was good. I obviously enjoyed not only the voices, but the fact that Horton was consistent with all of those voices. That was miraculous to me. I'm not sure how, you know, it's got to be a, a difficult thing to remember what you sounded like when you're not doing this as a, you know, as a, uh, What am I trying to say? You're not in the studio 24-7 just reading it from cover to cover. You're obviously doing this over a period of days and days and weeks and weeks. Um, I took on a little audio narration of Christmas Carol many years ago for my daughters, which is far from uh, noteworthy, I guess, in many respects, but I found myself trying to, to remember how I portrayed those voices, and so as I think back on John Horton's narration, one of the things that struck me most was his ability to consistently portray those voices. And I'll leave it at that. I've taken a great deal of time. I'll let some of the rest of you carry on here.
1: Would you like to catch up? Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Can I go? Yes, right now. Hi.
4: Um, Just one quick comment on the characters, and then I'll comment on Horton, and that is that um, although I always have some difficulty with Dickens, I find his bad characters are just too bad. One of the things that impressed me was that the characters, although they grew throughout the novel, they st- there was enough consistency to believe that this was the same person. And I thought that was very impressive, to be able to show the growth while keeping them consistent with their former selves. I thought that was really powerful. Interestingly enough, Dickens was Freud's, I believe, was Freud's favorite writer. So I thought that was interesting. As far as Horton's narration, one of the things that I started thinking about was the fact that when we had the American Foundation for the Blind and now with the new studio in New York, one of the things that we had was an organization whose narrators had done an awful lot of acting. And I think that that was very evident in Horton's narration and in the narration of a lot of the AFB readers, that they that they had that acting experience. And I think, Nolan, the thing that you're talking about with the consistency over a period of time has to do with the fact that while an actor may think about the voices that he's using, the actor is really thinking about becoming the character. And I think, and I don't... The more I thought about it, the more convinced I was that narrators who had done a lot of acting, I could almost tell you who, has, who sees themselves as an actor first and a narrator second, and who sees themselves as a narrator first. It would be interesting to survey narrators to see if my view of that is consistent with theirs. But I think that he really got a sense of who these characters were and sort of became those characters. And for me, that made it live.
5: Yeah, definitely. Mr. Horton is an, an actor out of Canada, as I understand it. And, oh yeah, he, he had the voices spot on. I mean, I, I knew Betsy from her.
1: I just want to say that I think, Don, you make a, an extremely good point. I never thought about that in quite that way, but you're absolutely right. I think that's very a very astute thought. And I believe that... Narrators, the narrators that read, or obviously they do read, for us, um, or for anyone who reads um, audio books, are better uh, at doing it if they have had acting experience. I really, really believe that. I think it, it puts them a cut above because if they can, if they're actors first, um, they can really be excellent narrators, you know, if the acting comes first. I really, truly believe that. I think this was very consistent. I got a little annoyed with the voices, though, I have to say, because of the English accent. It was uh, a little bit difficult to understand what some of the characters were saying, and I didn't really like that um, all that much. But I do think he was very consistent in what he did, and um, I didn't get to answer the uh, question about my favorite character, but I think I probably liked Peggotty best of all.
0: Well, I wish that Alan Lemley, my good friend, had listened to Alan Haynes, and then he would see the difference. Horton was okay, but I found myself jumping between the audible guy to see how he handled the chapter, and and this uh, and and Horton. And uh, I think you got to be an actor first. I think you guys are right. Wilkins was. May I jump back? Was he the funeral director that Alan liked? The guy that smoked the pipe and. Uh, I can't remember him. I could be dead wrong. I would call him a bit character. One of the bit characters that Nolan mentioned, how well he develops them. And I want to add that, uh, yes, characters, Don Horn is right. The characters changed or grew. Dora, even at the end, you know, said if I could have lived a year with Agnes, by the way, nobody rated Agnes as a top person. I think she was great, but I didn't do it either. Um, But, um if I could have lived with Agnes, I would have been a better wife to you. And how how she at her death's door wanted to see Agnes last, you know. And Dora did grow, but she would drive me crazy too. I'm with I'm with Alan on that. But the characters uh, did grow, even with Uriah Heep and Whittemore, was it? Who the dwarf caught? That was a wonderful story. But. Um, they forgive Davy. I don't know if that's cynicism to the extreme or they're growing, but they forgave him. And I thought that was interesting. But, um, yeah, I'm with Anne. I, I listened. I heard Alan Haynes' voice in my ears, and maybe I'm, I wasn't being fair to John Horton.
3: Well, I don't know about being fair to John Horton, but it's, it's just like if you see a, a movie with one character – in it, played by a certain actor, and you see a different uh, edition of the movie. It's just like I, I have to say it, guys. I like the Christmas Carol done by Alastair Sims, and it's the only one I'll ever listen to. You know, if I see it on TV or whatever, I don't like the newer version of the Christmas Carol. I like the Alastair Sims, but. As far as Alan Haynes goes, um, he was absolutely marvelous in his portrayal of the dialects of the the British Isles. And no matter what book it was that he read, and I've read several by him, or that were narrated by him, and Horton does a creditable job, I've, I must say, but somehow... Haynes made these characters come alive. I don't know why, but there was something about his voice, the way he did his narration. And it's just like um, I mentioned that that crazy bit part character, the the old man who uh, you know who who bought David's jacket, you know, in that little dirty old shop in that little town. And is is back and forth and back and forth and all oh, my eyes and teeth, oh guru, all oh, my ears and legs, oh guru, or however it was, you know. And and I can just hear Haynes doing this, and just amazingly, and um, you know, it just he made the book come alive somehow for me, and and I I have to say it. That Horton, as as Bob so rightly said, Horton is okay. Horton does well, but I have to say I'm a Haynes lover, and I always will be, and I can't change.
6: One thing I must say too is that when Alan Haynes read the things in the with the Cockney accents or the various old le- accents, he didn't go to such an extent that you couldn't understand them, and that was one thing that. Uh, Mr. Horton did. I mean, there were times I had real times trouble understanding them. And But with uh, Alan Haynes, he never lost that uh, ability to make you understand. I mean, if if you don't understand the the various English accents, he would always make sure that uh, they could be understood, that the words could be un- understood.
5: Well, I had no problem with Horton as doing of the accents um but the thing about way um, haynes of course is he's from wales so there is of course that lovely musicality that welsh folks tend to have in their voices george holmes is another welsh guy who does uh who's done uh stuff so i think you can put it down to haynes's musicality as well as the fact that you know with his stuff um yeah, and I kind of like him too, but he isn't. You know, there were there are a lot of narrators I like. Another thing is the character I think you're thinking of, um, Bob, is Wilkins Macawber. He's the guy who is uh, constantly having money
0: problems. Alan, you mean Alan? Like Mr. Macawber number one. I gotta talk to him. Oh, he was awful, but he was an example of the flowery language, right? If you if he owed you a bill, he'd talk to you for three days, and you'd probably go away shaking your head, and you certainly wouldn't get your money. Oh, Wilkins, okay. Well, everybody has a right to their own character, but I would never have thought of him as my favorite. Oh, no, he was dreadful. He did reform at the end, becoming a magistrate in Australia. Australia, that was another point that Dickens did, the second frontier, the second chance. They went to Mr. Mel, the schoolmaster who... Um Steerforth really got, and Mr. Treacle, or whatever his name is, nobody's mentioned him. he's pretty bad too. the schoolmaster. I never send the, my son to a school like that
5: well, um Kevins now there we can get into Nicholas Nickleby and Squeers, the nasty Squeers at Dude Boys Hall. Um, the thing, yeah, I, I think Miss Allen's Lemley is really right about the, the vocabulary. I think there are things that stand out in Dickens' novels for me. For example, there's the, <laughs> the circumlocution office in Little Dorrit where you're going round in circles and going backwards at the same time. And um, I think in Dombian's son, Michael Clark Lawrence, does a whole scene dealing with fog and also with the uh, a whole, the way our mutual friend is set up. It, 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 there are parts that are very much like a modern day sh- uh, snapshot which is written present tense and I don't know too many people who started writing in present tense as if something is occurring, but I'm thinking maybe Dickens must be one of the first, but He will get onto a word um, and talk about what uh, I don't know how to describe it—a soliloquy on the use of the word shares. You know, uh, you know who has them, who doesn't have them, what they just amazing stuff. So I agree with Alan that vocabulary and the way—and I think another thing, Dickens loved the theater, so there is that. Theatrical quality to his characters. Some of them are very exaggerated, even though they may be real to life. But I think he could probably play all the parts, and he probably did.
2: I, I uh, yeah, I thought that I was not fortunate enough to have read Alan Haynes' version of this. I'm sorry I didn't. I might have. I, I'm sure I would have enjoyed it more. Um, and yeah, I, you know, having read this only for the first time. Uh, at this point in time in my life, which is sort of a uh, perhaps a bit of an embarrassing thing to admit. I mean, to be my age and finally reading this book. But uh, so I've not had exposure to other versions. But I do agree that some of Horton's accents were pretty exaggerated and uh, made it a little difficult to, to speed up and get through on a higher speed, which I tend to do with books anyway. Um, but that does bring me to my next little segue here. And I'd like to talk with you about what you thought were scenes in the book that really stood out for you, pieces of it that were perhaps more memorable than others. Um, I won't go first this time. I'll, I'll let you do this. But, but talk to me about what you think were some of the scenes, if you will. If we could divide this book into scenes, I guess, and it, obviously it's not a play, but you know what I'm talking about, those portions that really sort of stood out for you what comes to mind
6: i think the thing that comes to mind is when dave david was so convinced that he had lost agnes and he finally went over to see her and agnes was trying so hard not to talk to him and uh, that the whole thing and she was getting hysterical and and uh, finally it came out that uh, Yes, she had. He thought she was going to marry someone else, and and he fi- she finally came out with, uh, uh, well, there is someone, but uh, it is not a new person. And suddenly, it kind kind of keeps coming back with uh, that uh, she had always loved David. And here, this very collected, very uh, nice woman is, you know, just totally, uh, totally. Uh, lost as far as, um, you know, was um, embarrassed about being, as far as his, him asking her to marry him and the whole thing. I thought that was a very nice, a very good
0: scene. Well, mine was when Peggy sees Emily again. She was hiding in a room way up there, and, and uh, David is like a producer. There's the theater again, Kim. Will he ever come up? Where's Peggy? He's due. And Emily, and it's all going on. And you have that horrible woman, Rosa, was it? They're yelling at her and really mean to poor Emily. And then Peggotty comes in and Rosa rushes past him. And you have the major scene. And he takes her in his arms. And there's nothing to forgive. He He always loved her. His great quest of the world to try to find her, and one thing i 'll say about Peggotty, who's a strong candidate as a, as the first you know most favorite character, he ties it up he ties up the australia experience he uh, David and Agnes you know he comes into their their abode, I guess he's grizzled and probably smells a little bit, but they don't care. They sit next to him and he ties up the Australia. What happened to all these people, and uh Peggotty was used as the instrument to do that. But when he saw Emily, uh, tears came on that one.
6: Well,
3: I think the scene for me that, that um, and I haven't said much about Betsy Trotwood, and, and maybe I should, but the scene that, that uh, did it for me was, um, and I'm going back to sort of the be- beginning of the book, or the, you know, the first part of the book was, uh, her his appearance at her house, and you know because he's absolutely terrified. Um. And yet at the same time he he um you know he says you've got to take me in you know you you're my aunt you know and and he he persists even though he um he's terrified and she is so. Uh, overbearing in a certain sense and yet at the same time um, he begins to realize that that she um, that she really cares and just a quick aside about Betsy Trotwood um, I think Dickens pulled her out of any number of characters in the late 1800s in Britain who were single women who were very much concerned about women's rights and and so forth which is the you know the the um, counterpoint of what was going on in America at the same time and I'm sure there were many women who were like Betsy Trotwood but that would be my scene I think
1: I think for me and I know it has been mentioned before the uh, scene with the coat because I think the idea of having to give up everything just to have a little of something, maybe just a few pence to have something to eat or to get something to eat if you even get that, was really symbolic of what maybe it was a a little bit over the top but it was really true at that time what he was trying to portray in that uh, that's the way people who were very poor lived and a coat, having to give up something that would keep you warm Um, sleeping outside because you've run away, as David did. That, to me, is the ultimate in losing everything. And that's what it was really all about, losing everything. The only thing that you really had was your life. And actually, with so many people being greedy, never, never knowing the kind of person you might run into on a daily basis, you weren't ever really sure whether that life you had was one you could keep because it was your wits against everyone else. And some of those people were out there, had lived a lot longer and had, obviously, than David and at that point and could do a lot more and could scheme a lot better than he could at that point, being a child. He had a lot to learn. He was just in uh, the beginning stages of having to learn how to live. And um, so I think that, I think that um, scene was very symbolic of the times and of what he was writing about.
5: No, I think the thing that gets me about David running away to Betsy is that he was not going to be a victim anymore of circumstance because he was under the thumb of Murdston and he wanted to get away from him and I maybe I get this sense of desperation that if he didn't do it, you know, he would be he would be immured under Murdstone's thumb for the rest of his life so the only thing he could do the only way he could survive was to talk to his aunt Betsy and if she didn't take him in he would really be he would end up dead on the street or something of that nature.
2: There are obviously a lot of scenes that, that we could focus on here and some of you have done, done that and done it so well the storm scene comes to mind for me where the, you know, the, the guy who wants to be Emily's husband winds up ultimately, you know, saving Steerforth and, oh my goodness, what a, there's just so many interesting, you know, patterns in this book of redemption and second chances and uh, for Steerforth, of course, those second chances uh, didn't materialize because he didn't allow them to, he didn't live his life in such a way that they could, um, I think the scenes that stand out for me at this point in time in my life, interestingly enough, are the ones in which young David is separated from his mother when he is forced off to school. Um, Those of us who did residential schools for the blind have, and who had, uh, you know, a solid parental sort of backing at home when we were little, understand that kind of an experience. I recall it as a four-year-old. Um, the, the the sheer terror of being separated from people who up to that point in my life had never um, done or said or or behaved in any way that, that was contrary to what I would have wanted or needed or expected. And suddenly, um, by no fault of their own, my parents just, you know, they had to be separated from me for that period of time while I was in school. They <laughs> later sacrificed all and moved to the community where the school was that summer after that first year. But, um, those scenes absolutely stand out for me because you uh, you see Dickens writes them in such a way that there is that poignancy there. This little kid is is separated, and the tears are there, and the and the oh gosh, the horror of that journey, and it must have been even worse because he had to do it by carriage, and so it just took forever to get from point A to point B. And so I see those scenes as being among the more poignant, the more memorable for me. Any others whom we've forgotten or haven't we haven't uh, heard from
5: i remember when i went to school for the first time going to elementary school and i was abandoned by my folks so i i get it i really do get it you know the, you know it Oh, didn't matter that i was maybe going home at the end of the day but there was that feeling I'm abandoned by these folks that I'm that's supposed to take care of me, and I'm in this strange place.
2: And you can't help but feel a certain sense of frustration and anger with the mother, who had no self-esteem and therefore allowed the abuse to happen, and allowed those things to happen to David that uh, that did. But that's not all that different. We live in a day and time when the internet is filled with news stories about children who. Are abused and sometimes the parent looked on or at the very least uh, uh, refused to believe that the abuse occurred. And and we you know we live in this highly enlightened era and we think we're doing so incredibly well, but you know in reality, my goodness, it's just uh, <laughs> times unfortunately haven't changed that much. you uh, talk about abusive schoolmasters, you know. You look in the news and and what do you have? You have a. Case at Penn State where alleged abuse has occurred. Granted, those probably weren't small kids, but uh, even still, our, our times just haven't changed all that much in spite of our uh, scientific knowledge and all the so-called enlightenment that we have over, over what existed then. So uh, that's a you know a good reason for this book's continued relevance. I think.
1: Well, I think that probably what happens is that back in that time, people. If they were good, people were putting their needs... They they were trying to get along the best way they could. And the people who were, were bad were just scheming and greedy and doing it for whatever nefarious reasons they had. And I think today the the difference is that people decide to ignore abuse simply because they don't want to be without the relationship. They're not willing to sacrifice... A relationship which they would have to if they were to admit and deal with the fact that that their child if they're in a romantic relationship with someone were abused and the, the Penn State situation is certainly terrible um, but a lot of times people are looking out for their own interests they want to keep what they have whether it's a career or whether it's a relationship in that sense I think it probably is very similar because People don't want to lose what they have, and it's the only way that they want to go on. They don't want to have to take a chance on that, and that's what I think what we have to change. Um, That's the only way we really can change the circumstances for people who really need it, especially for children.
0: I don't want to go too deep. You're right, Bonnie, absolutely, both of you, but quickly, Penn State, the coach saw the little boy being attacked by the the other coach, and did nothing, and now he's under you know the d a s made a deal with him, so he's immune, but I couldn't live with myself. I don't care about Joe Pod and all those people the a d and the president. If I were there, and a young little kid was being abused or anybody, I'd be probably be killed, but I'd sure fight fight the guy who's doing it. I wouldn't stand back
5: well, another thing that struck me uh with regard to. David's mother. David's mother wasn't raised uh, to take care of anybody. She didn't have the knowledge to do it. Peggy was taking care of her. So in a sense, she was sort of like a child and not a grown-up. And I don't think she ever really did grow up. Uh, Same thing with Dora. She wasn't raised to think that she should be have a mind or to have more to her character and so she was raised to be daddy's pet daddy's darling and and to be a pretty little ornamental creature and that is the worst thing that women can be is raised to be ornamental creatures with no thoughts in their brains nothing in their minds and and leading a a, an existence where there's nothing there and that, ha, heaven help you if you want to get an education. And, of course, these women weren't allowed or it didn't seem that it was necessary for them to be educated. So I think that they were raised to be sort of infant, like infants or little little children rather than rather than grown-up people. And if you're going to have a kid, you have to be grown-up
0: to some extent. Well, that's my final word, believe it or not. This carried through to today. I was hearing a great Gildersleeve in the 40s, and he said the, the girl wanted his, Marjorie, his niece, wanted to get a job. because no, your place is in the home to be a good wife, have a bunch of kids, and let your husband do the thinking for you. And this was in the 40s, and so it's there still today. Permeates.
1: Wouldn't it be nice if we could take all of the empty-headed people who don't want to think and say, okay, let's put them in that slot because they like being there. And that way we could eliminate a lot of people in the world who are out there trying to do things and aren't doing them at all well. I'm for that.
2: We have a fascination in our society, it seems, with people who don't think well. Um, you need proof of that. You need look no farther than the Kardashian women and the reality television generally. I mean, these, these programs are filled with, <laughs> with people who really aren't all that up on using their head for much. And I don't care whether you you know what reality show you're talking about. Inevitably, all of them you can find at least one really uh, tragic, stupid character. Who and yet there is a certain fascination, a lot like uh, the kind of fascination we have for a giant bug on a windshield. You know, we're fascinated by the the, the horrific size and nature of the thing, and we're repulsed uh, at the same time by the misshapenness of it, having you know struck the glass. So. You know, it's that same kind of mentality, and we're, we still have those kinds of issues in our society. I want to spend a minute with you before we bring this down. Um, it's interesting to me tonight that poor old Tommy, David's truly best friend, is really barely referenced here in the book. And I, I'd like your thoughts on Tommy. Why do you think he got um, so little play tonight, actually? And, and generally speaking, why is it that there's so little reference to Tommy? Uh, you know, in our heads as we as we think back on this book. And he does play a pretty pivotal role here. Um, you know, he's he's helped David through a great many difficulties, and David in turn helps him, frankly, uh, c- encourages him to go ahead and tie the knot with that girl. You know, marry her for crying out loud, and you'll do a great job, and it, as
0: it turns out, he does. So what are your thoughts about Tommy? I'd be curious. Well, very briefly, I think Tommy was a nerd at school. You know, he drew those, was the Skeletons? And all that, but he grows too. There you go. He becomes a lawyer. Da- uh, David, uh, what goes to Switzerland all over, and Tommy takes care of his affairs here. Uh, you know, his papers and helps him, and 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 it's, and then you're right. Uh, Sophie and all the girls move in on on Tommy. I love Tommy. We and and I wondered why we nobody mentioned him, including me. But I think we think of the nerd at the school. But that nerd grew up to be quite a fine person, far better than. Steerforth, who protected Davy at school, you know, and albeit he was a gang leader, he protected David. Um, so Tommy's great. I mean, uh, but I don't know who he represents. Maybe there's another character that grew up and really made a difference in the world.
5: I think he's just a nice. I think he's a nice guy and a, a, a good person. And um, I would say probably he was. David's true friend and, you know, a chum, you know. Um, So he's an all-around good sort, you know. Uh, That's all I can think about him, really.
1: I think that a person like Tommy, because he's nice and unremarkable, and I think Kim, you said it very well, is really, we almost don't think about that person because we, we... it's human nature for us to look for the extremes the people who are just sort of steady and grow and are nice and and do the right things we all say we aspire to that but i think what we really admire in literature or in any writing we admire the people who don't do that who are who really go out on a limb who really have fire and passion and good or bad and that's that's kind of sad but I guess that's what we I guess that's what we really do in real life I mean look at TV you know, if somebody was just always there doing the right thing like the uh, shows where people uh, went around and told people good news and did good news stories people s- yawned after a while and said oh that's lovely but it's always going to be good and that's what they do and it's like the happy ending all the time I'm not interested in that give me the other because i like my evil i like my passion i like my uh, suspense and and uh, the power battles that go on and that sort of thing it's it's i think that's just human nature we don't really steady is boring we may like that person but they're boring in literature anyway
5: well i don't know um i don't well the thing is i'm wondering what David Copperfield would have been like if it had been told from Tommy's perspective. I'm, I'm wondering how he would have talked. Um, but I mean I don't dislike Tommy but I guess the thing is we tend to think of the, I think you're right there Bonnie, it's the eccentrics that stand out in our head and I don't know if Tommy was boring precisely but you know it's like i don't think charles dickens expended the effort to make him stand out to us so i mean he's there he's a nice guy he's a good english chap well he
6: also t- so showed up as david's confidential friend when he was trying to uh, deal with the sisters or the, a- the aunts the aunts of dora when he was trying to marry them and he helped to bring that whole thing through but maybe in some respects uh tommy traddles is sort of the counterpoint of agnes uh agnes was everything good uh, but uh and tommy turned out to be the one person in the book that he could rely on that david could rely on and it was you know stayed with him through the whole thing and and uh, they would, you know, have their Sunday dinners together. And and uh, many times the good people, you don't hear much about them in, in uh, things. But I think that the, they, they both were, uh, you know, they both, you know, had a very important part in his life.
0: Well, Agnes is another one. We haven't met. Nobody named her, including me, as the best character. And yet she was good. Was there a time, you know, she would not marry Uriah Heep. She knew what was coming. David warned her, but she knew. She says it won't happen. And uh, she's really great. It, was she boring? I don't know. She was waiting for David, you know, to grow up. And I thought she's terrific, but I wouldn't name her my favorite character. Just... I. I She wasn't boring, but she wasn't a leader. And it's—I think of the radio show, old-time radio. Henry Aldridge and Homer Brown. Homer Brown was funny if you listened to some of his lines, but Henry always got the big laughs. You know, maybe the writers did that. But Agnes was really good and uh, loved Dora, helped Dora wherever she could, and calmed David down when he had his problems. And yet, I don't think any of us mentioned her as the top character in the book.
1: I just want to say, Kim, I think you're right. He was a good English chap, Tommy was. And he was steady. I want to take back Boring, because that wasn't really, your choice of words was much better than mine. And I'm the host of Books and Beyond, right? You know, I don't know. Uh, Tommy and Agnes, well, the thing is that
5: Dickens is inclined to be very sentimental, if you know what I mean. And he tends to Paint the good old chaps and the the good lasses is is very you know you know they're very very good. I mean. People stand out to us because, you know, they're not just good, but because there's something about them. Maybe there's a little idiosyncrasy about them that stands out. I don't see Agnes as having any idiosyncrasies that would say, Hi, I'm Agnes. I'm standing out from the crowd. You can notice me. And and Tommy, um, well, I forgot about the skeletons.
2: <laughs> I think, though, that... Um we underestimate the power of the rather so-called average good guy. I think every one of us in our lives has met someone whom we very much aspire to be like when we grow up. I don't care how old we are or how adult we are. There are people out there who are just innately decent and who qualify as being inspirational because of that innate decency. I could I could name you people in my own life um, who, who, either consistently and always stepped up to the plate and just were were decent. There are there are also those among us who you know in our lives who are heroic um, at a time when they need to be heroic. Um, I don't I don't know that Tommy ever quite achieved those things, and yet you know he may have to David. He he and certainly Agnes did. She. She, in some ways, redeemed David, if you will, gave him a second chance at marriage, a second chance at life, um, at at the things that really were important. Um, And so to that degree, she is sort of heroic and does sort of stand out, at least for me. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I I think it's interesting that we, we sometimes overlook the good people that are around us, and on the other hand, we do that to our peril because those folks have such incredible power, for and such incredible influence for good. Uh, they, they literally change who we are and what, how we think, just by virtue of their basic decency and the kind of people that they quietly are. So
5: I, am, I admire. There are people I know who will, have remembered friends from their childhood, who remember their birthdays, who remember. to to send cards and stuff, and I really admire that kind of loyalty and ongoing, tenacious friendship. Um, It's hard when we lose people along the way, but I really admire those folks who say, oh yeah, I remember this person from first grade, and... They've had friends for long times, and they keep friendships up. And it's just something I really admire. And I think decent people tend to do that kind of thing. They will they don't even think about it. I mean, if someone's like, oh, hey, I'll go over. I got this pot of something that I can bring over. Um, there's some folks in Costa Mesa who I regard as really decent people who will go out of their way without saying very much about it but it it just it, occur, it just doesn 't occur to him them to do anything else.
1: I admire that too, but I think I most of all admire people who never sacrifice their principles and what they believe in, even if it means that that means an inconvenience in their lives, even if that means they have to give up something or are more lonely because of it. Because they have to stand up for what they believe in. And sometimes when you stand up for what you believe in, you're alone in doing it. I really admire people like that.
2: Well, and I think the magic of Tommy, although it's not written in black and white as in the book, as it were, the magic of people like Tommy and Agnes are that we never really know the depth of greatness uh, to which they inspire David without them. Think of those, the book without those two characters, how much more bereft he would have been without their influence. And obviously we don't know, we can't measure from our perspective what exactly their influence was, but I, you know, you can't help but love people who quietly, privately prop up those around them, um, who talk them down off the ledge, even though the rest of the world never finds out that, that someone was on the ledge and that... that person had to sort of talk them off those are the kind of people you really want and need in your life who can privately come to your assistance when you really need them and uh, and make the difference so i think tommy did that and i think uh, i hope i'm not reading too much into this uh, but i do perceive his character as being one that um as bob pointed out earlier you know looked after david's affairs when david sort of went off the rail and he did he just kind of went off the deep end there for a while um and Tommy's out there just quietly solving problems, getting it done, making sure that the guy doesn't go hungry, (laughs) or whatever happens. So, you know, uh, I think that those characters are crucial, even though they had a a, a relatively small part to play in terms of number of pages.
6: Boy, Nolan, you can sure say that that is absolutely the case. And uh, how they inspire someone is so important, and it's something that many times we overlook. But I think those words were were so... Right on the mark.
0: Don, had it. have anything to add as we near the end here? Yeah. Um, Are we ready? Yes.
4: As we come to the, nearing the end of the discussion, I have found this absolutely fascinating. And as always, it really has enriched the book for me. Um, I actually did not think much about... Tommy, except to think, well, why is he in the book? And I think that this segment may have clarified that for me. I certainly found Agnes made sense. Tommy made sense to me, but I wasn't quite clear, so that's been very interesting. I think one of the other things that... um really stood out for me. We were discussing um, the Richard Paul Evans series a little bit. You may remember on DB Review this week. And one of the things that went through my mind is that Dickens was really a social critic. I mean, he clearly wrote. Part of the reason that Dickens wrote was because he wanted to make the world a better place. And yet, Dickens wrote in a way that You got that information from living the lives of those characters that he portrayed. You were living I mean, we really lived David's life. And so there wasn't the need to discuss, well, this is what David's thinking. I mean there was there was some of it. There was not there was not a lot of exposition. You just because you were living it with the characters, and I think that's the brilliance of good writing, and I guess that's the problem that I had in that that first um, book of the Richard Paul Evans trilogy, and it became more clear to me as I read Dickens. Just because I know we're we're kind of winding down, I just want to reiterate what a joy it is to get to know all of you through DB Review. It's very exciting, the the impact that literature can have. I wrote um, earlier today, I wrote a review, uh, some of you may have seen, I finished reading Little Girl Blue, and it was a very difficult review to write because... The Carpenters Music is so connected with a friendship that I've held for many years that I couldn't figure out how to separate my experience of the book from my experience of the person. And I think that in in a very interesting way, DB Review serves that purpose for all of us. We all kind of become more because of each other, and, yeah, we're reading books, and some of us, you know, some of us read the same books, some of us read different books, but somehow or other, it brings us together in a way that very few things can, and whatever our politics are, or our ages, or our vision statuses, it sort of becomes irrelevant, because... We share this experience of reading and being readers, and I just think that's very enriching, and that's why it's such a privilege to have anything at all to do with a list like DB Review.
2: Well, yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I, as I as Again, as I look back on three years of the classic, um, these meetings, I, I just am sort of, uh, I don't even know what the word is. I, I guess I stand back and think, my gosh, look where we've, Look where we've become. Look what we've become in, the, in that almost four-year period, as I said earlier. And it's not because I had anything to do with it. It's because you guys are there. And that's the magic of DB Review. It's the people who are on the list and who set aside all of the other silly boundaries and um, divisive things that would otherwise be a problem and just plunge into a book. And uh, because of the list, I think we all live more abundantly than we than we would if we didn't have that kind of uh, uh, input into our, our lives. I have scores and scores of reviews that some of you have written. Granted, I've not yet gotten to those books, but the reviews are in a place and I actually go back and look at them and think, okay, is it time to go get that book? Because I think part of of reading a good book is about the timing in your life and, and how much you get out of it at, at a different time in your life. But that's for another another discussion, I guess. But I do want to, again, express my thanks to Bob for giving us this place to meet every year. It is, uh, if we could transliterate it into something physical, it would be a wonderful place with padded chairs and a fire going and, and uh, refreshment of all kinds and, and, a, and a, just an inviting, wonderful place to be. And that's what it becomes every November, uh, especially for DB review, and we're grateful. Thanks also to Marsha, who uh, I certainly ha- hold such high esteem for as a as a, a colleague over on the Worldwide Legend side, and um, grateful for her help and, and to Ruth Ann and Nancy and Bonnie always uh, for what you've done and all of you really and and uh, I guess my. <clears throat> I'm most grateful to Don for picking up the slack and and doing things um, that I've sort of let drop and roll at times during the last year or so. And I think that will get better over the next year, but uh, I'm grateful for all that he does to keep the list alive and well, and uh, all of you for being part of the list. I do appreciate it. I do want to just very quickly remind you as we close that on December 1st, I will once again be announcing the favorite book of 2011 and the contest, if you will. It's really not a contest. It's uh, the ability to for everybody to chime in with their favorite book of the year or a couple of books. And uh, this year, I think we're going to expand it a little bit. We've given away either a uh, an 8-gigabyte memory card in the past or an NLS cartridge and cable. I think this year we'll expand that choice to include either an Amazon or iTunes gift card of a similar monetary value. And so... Um, do keep in mind that the first of December is coming and we're going to make that announcement and you'll want to be thinking about the books that you, uh, you might want to submit and uh, everybody gets put into the drawing and the fun happens. So thanks again, all of you for being here. And Bob, I'll give you the final word as I think is appropriate.
0: Well, thank you, Nolan and Don and everybody. We look forward to seeing you next year. Happy birthday to our wonderful Alexander Scorby. And I want to say I too, have a Nolan Don folder loaded with reviews. And when I'm on my desert island someday, I'm bringing a lot of books with me because we sure appreciate it. Thanks, guys. This was wonderful. And you guys were a marvelous audience. Thank you so much and happy Thanksgiving.